The apocalypse, the fall of Jerusalem, sheep and goats, it's just another cheerful episode of The Backdrop. We've got quite the episode this time on The Backdrop. We're using Matthew chapters 24 and 25 as our jumping off point, looking in particular more deeply at the theme of apocalyptic or apocalypse running through it. We covered quite a bit of these chapters in our sermons these past couple weeks, but in particular with chapter 24, I wanted to look at other examples of apocalyptic literature elsewhere in the Bible. So, To make the flow of all this work as well as possible, we're actually going to look at a couple of quick thoughts from chapter 25 first, then go back and do a deep dive on the apocalyptic references in chapter 24. So, first, chapter 25, where we start with the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. The scholars I read said that marriage customs varied a fair amount in the ancient world and that there's a surprisingly little amount written about the specifics of them, but that If we piece things together, we can get a decent guess without any real certainty about the sorts of customs that lie behind this story. In a wedding, the first feast tended to be at the bride's house, and this could last any any amount of time, and then the procession would make its way from the bride's house to the groom's house, where the couple would live from this point forward. The families might haggle along the way over the bride price and the gifts the bride gave to family members not because they're actually concerned with the stuff or the money in and of themselves, but because haggling was a way of symbolically showing the great worth of the bride. She is such a valuable catch. See how much we're arguing over the gifts that she's given and how much we want them. The upshot of all this is that the bride and groom didn't have a set time that they would arrive at the groom's house, and it would often be late into the night by the time that they did. Once they did arrive, though, they would be escorted into the bedroom by virgin bridesmaids which means they were usually young and part of the extended family of the bride. And so the failure of the foolish girls in this story is that they aren't ready when the party arrives. They aren't ready to do the job of welcoming and escorting in the new couple. And this would have been seen as an insult to the couple in the, I think so little of you that I can't even be bothered to show you honor on your wedding day sort of way. And that then explains the shutting of the door. If you aren't going to bother showing me honor on my wedding day, why should I bother showing you the honor of being in my wedding party? It makes a lot of sense seen in that light. One interesting thing about the structure of this section of Matthew, it's one of several places where Jesus tells a story about men, like the wise and foolish servant stories that come right before and after this one, and then a parallel story with the same basic meaning about women. It's one of many hints we get even through a book written in an extremely patriarchal culture, that Jesus held radical views for his time about women. Both men and women are called to discipleship. Both need to be ready when the kingdom comes. Both are invited to the party. The next story is the story of the talents, the three servants whose master goes away, leaving them in charge of different amounts of money, which is what a talent was at the time. Meredith mentioned that the talents might very well have been interpreted at the time as the gifts God had given to Israel and entrusted to them, the law and the promised land and God's presence. And so this story would be about, in part, the mismanagement of those gifts by the leaders of Israel and then the consequences of that mismanagement. A talent, as we've said before, was an extraordinarily large amount of money, showing the value of what God has entrusted to Israel. 
and the words spoken to the servant who buried their talent in the ground would be a thinly veiled warning of the judgment to come upon those in Israel who had misused their gifts. One piece of this story that sometimes brings people up short is when Jesus says that to those who have, more will be given, and to those who don't have, even what they do have will be taken away. Now, it's important to remember here that Jesus isn't literally talking about money. He isn't giving an economics lesson about the value of hard work and investing. Although some people have tried to read it that way, that's not the point. He's using that image to say something true about the kingdom of God. Those who have the kingdom will get an abundance of the goodness and life of the kingdom. Those who have opted out of the kingdom, even what they think they have, will be taken away. Those things will be shown to be empty and lifeless in the end. This parallels in the book of Proverbs how wisdom is talked about. When a wise person is taught, they add to their wisdom and become wiser still. When a fool is taught, they reject it and lose even what they have. And then finally, for chapter 25, we get the sheep and the goats. A couple questions that arise in interpreting this story I thought we might talk about quickly here. First, when it says that all nations will be judged in this way, separating them out as the sheep and the goats, is it meaning all the non-Jewish nations, that is the Gentiles, non-Christians, that sort of thing, in which case it would be a separate judgment to what followers of Jesus will face, or does it mean all nations like all nations, including followers of Jesus. The words could have been meant either in the context of the day. Some have interpreted this story to be about non-Christians for two main reasons. First, it makes sense of why actions rather than faith are the criteria for judgment. It doesn't make it sound as if those who follow Jesus earn their salvation by doing good things. But then second, there's a tradition in Jewish thought at the time that the Gentiles would be judged by God on the basis of how they treated the nation of Israel. Those Gentiles who were kind to God's people would be credited with that behavior. Those who were cruel to God's people would be condemned for that behavior. And so then in that light, this story would be a reworking of that existing expectation. Others, though, point to the Old Testament prophet, prophets and the book of James and elsewhere to say, no, this is entirely consistent with the theme in scripture that those who are a part of the people of God inevitably show that membership in God's family through actions, like caring for the least of these, the poor, the oppressed. There is no conflict here because those who do not do these things for the least of these are showing themselves to not be a part of God's kingdom in the first place. It's not that the good works get them in. It's that once they're in, they will do good works. And in that light, everyone might be judged in this way. I do think both are entirely possible. Either way, though, they don't really change much on the practical level as far as what we ought to do as followers of Jesus. But I would tend to lean towards the second interpretation. Although, since this is a parable, I think we would be misreading it to think Jesus is saying there will be some sort of literal judgment scene like this one where people are physically separated and this sort of conversation happens between Jesus and the people. That isn't what parables are for. They paint a picture to establish a theological truth not to establish the picture itself as truth. Another question that is raised by this story is whether Jesus is talking about the poor and marginalized in general, or if he's talking about the disciples and Christian missionaries in particular, in which case the meaning would be however you received Jesus's messengers, however you received the good news of the gospel and the people who brought it, that would determine your fate. 
This interpretation arises because the description of the people who are helped by the sheep or not helped by the goats aligns pretty closely with how the disciples are described in the Gospels and in the book of Acts and elsewhere. They are poor, put in prison, beaten, etc. I get the appeal of this interpretation, but again, I think it is more a case of people trying really hard to steer way clear of works righteousness, where we can earn our salvation by doing good things. As I said just now, I don't think this is what Jesus is saying anyway, but I also think we would do well to listen to the consistent theme throughout the Bible that says that what we do does matter, that God places great emphasis on how God's people act, whether they forgive, especially in the areas of justice towards the vulnerable. Not because if we do enough things, we can earn our way into the kingdom of God, but because being a part of the kingdom of God always changes the way we live. Okay, so now we move to our big topic, the apocalypse. I said a fair amount about this in my sermon last week, and I don't want to repeat too much of that here so that we can have a little more time for other stuff and to expand on it. Apocalyptic literature was extremely common and popular in the first century, precisely because of the cultural context of being under the Roman Empire's control. A powerful empire oppressing the people is exactly the sort of context where apocalyptic literature thrives because, as I said in my sermon, it's the literature of the oppressed who are trying to say what is true, but without drawing the attention of the censors. So there are a lot of non-biblical Jewish writings from the time that share similar features to what is in Matthew chapter 24 or Daniel or the book of Revelation, etc. in the Bible. The reason this matters is that those outside examples of this genre can help us know how to read the genre when it shows up in the Bible. Why would the writers of scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, use this particular genre to say what they're trying to say? What might they be saying by using it? The main thing that this literature was used for was to make a very this-worldly point, that the God of Israel was going to act to fulfill the promises God made in the Old Testament, and that despite appearances to the contrary, like the Roman occupation, for example, that time was coming soon. And this is why there's often a visionary heavenly aspect to these chapters, not because they're looking forward to some heavenly future, but because the heavenly realm is where we see the truth that is obscured on earth in the present. Heaven was not really seen as a separate up there sort of place in ancient Jewish thought. Heaven was not somewhere else. Heaven was often pictured more as an alternate dimension sort of thing. Another realm that kind of overlaps with this one, but is hidden and unseen most of the time. N.T. Wright says, because the heavenly and the earthly realm belong closely with one another, which is a way of asserting the presence of God within his creation and in the midst of his people, it makes theological sense to think of penetrating the mysteries of the heavenly realm and emerging with information that would relate to the earthly realm. The visions of apocalyptic literature were of a parallel universe, so to speak, an alternate dimension, but one that is soon going to break into this reality. What God is doing in heaven, God will soon do on earth as well. This is what is happening in Daniel 7, the chapter that Jesus references on multiple occasions when he speaks of the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Daniel, in that chapter, has a vision of four beasts, which represent four kingdoms. We'll come to that in a little bit. And then in verse 9, Daniel says this, As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. 
His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out of his presence. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn of one of the beasts was speaking, and as I watched, the beast was put to death, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being, or one like a son of man, as Jesus puts it, coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient one, God, and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was troubled within me, and the visions of my head terrified me. I approached one of the attendants to ask him the truth concerning all this, so he said that he would disclose to me the interpretation of the matter. As for these four great beasts... Four kings shall arise out of the earth, but the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And then jumping down to verse 23, this is what he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth that shall be different from all the other kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the 10 horns, out of this kingdom, 10 kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. This one shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the holy ones of the Most High, and shall attempt to change the sacred seasons and the law, and they shall be given into his power for a time, two times, and half a time. Then the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and totally destroyed. The kingship and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the holy ones of the Most High, their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey them. Here the account ends, as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly terrified me, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter in my mind. Most would understand this fourth beast to be Rome, the Roman Empire, and that during the time of Rome will come this kingdom of God. And as I said in my sermon, the Son of Man, whom Jesus claims to be, will come up to God's throne on clouds to be given power and dominion. This is what Jesus is referring to, not some end of time scenario, but rather the end of Roman rule and the coming of the kingdom of God. And the cosmic imagery fits into this idea of judgment against the empire. It sounds like the world is coming undone because that's what the fall of a world encompassing empire is, the world coming undone. There are so many examples of this in the Old Testament, but let me read one at, at length. This is from Isaiah chapter 13, which is titled, The Oracle Concerning Babylon, the Empire of the Day. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Verse 7. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt, and they will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. See, the day of Yahweh comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the earth the desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. 
I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant and lay low the insolence of tyrants. I will make mortals more rare than fine gold and humans than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of Yahweh of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And then dropping down to verse 19. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pride of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. As N.T. Wright says, this is what it means to say that the sun and moon will be darkened and the stars will not give their light like it does in Matthew 24. It means Babylon will fall or Rome, an earth shattering event. You can see similar imagery in Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 32, Joel chapter 2, and elsewhere. It's all throughout the prophets. Darkness, cosmic darkness, N.T. Wright says, this is the dominant image when Yahweh acts to judge the Babylons of the world. These passages all tell a story with the same set of motifs. Yahweh's victory over the great pagan city, the rescue and vindication of his true people who had been suffering under that city, and Yahweh's acclamation as king. Isaiah is talking about the empire of his day. Jesus is using the same language to make the same point about the empire of his day. Could similar language be used about the second coming when Jesus will return and the new heavens and new earth will become a full reality? Yes, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. Paul talks about that in certain cases, but in this case, Jesus is talking about something else. Here, Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God has come and that the day of Rome's power and those allied with Rome is at an end. And that those allied with Rome part brings us to a different point because caught up in this also is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. These might sound separate, but they actually aren't. Jesus is making a theological point here that Jerusalem, the ruling elite of Jerusalem, the temple and the chief priests, they are all part of the problem. They are getting in the way of the kingdom coming. And so they need to be destroyed both to make way for the kingdom, but also to show once and for all that God has abandoned them that their way leads to death. Jerusalem has thrown in its lot with Rome, and so her fate will be the same as the empire. This was one of my points in the sermon on this passage, that Matthew chapter 24 has the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in view from the beginning. When the disciples remark about the majesty of the temple, all the way through the parable of the talents we started with in this episode in chapter 25, and the fact that the end in this chapter is not the end of the world, but the end of Jerusalem is made abundantly clear in the parallel passage in the gospel of Luke, which is far less apocalyptic sounding. It's a little more normal sounding, but it is conveying the exact same message just to a different audience. If you read the two chapters, they're very similar. Just Luke tones down some of the more extreme language a little bit. But then in Luke chapter 21, verse 20, it says this, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains and those inside the city must leave it and those out in the country must not enter it. For these are the days of vengeance as a fulfillment of all that is written. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be taken away as captives among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is the end that Jesus is speaking of, the end of Jerusalem. 
and the temple because they are forces of oppression. They are counter to the kingdom of God, just like Rome is. But there's a further point Jesus is making. Jesus has referred to himself as the true temple of God before. And there is, in some mysterious sense, the necessity of the old false temple falling so that the new true temple, Jesus himself, can become reality. The paradox, the the mystery of it all, is that the destruction of the temple means Jesus becoming the true temple. And the destruction of Jerusalem means Jesus becoming the true king. The old idols have to fall before the true God can take the throne. And since Jesus has, like Jeremiah, staked his reputation as a prophet on the fall of Jerusalem and the temple, it's important that it actually happen, or else Jesus would be a false prophet. So for all these reasons, the coming of the kingdom of God, the raising of Jesus to power, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the end of the age of Roman power, they are all inextricably connected with each other. And they are exactly the sort of subversive, earth-shattering message that you would need apocalyptic imagery to faithfully convey. They also have the practical implication for the disciples that when the destruction of Jerusalem is at hand, they should flee, not fight. When the Roman armies whose standard had an eagle on it are circling the city like vultures, like Jesus says in verse 28, then know that destruction has come. Just like the flood suddenly came in the day of Noah, as Jesus mentions in verse 37. And the followers of Jesus, again, are not to stay and fight for the city because the fall of the city is necessary, like we were just saying, for Jesus to be fully exalted and for the kingdom to come. It will all flash across the sky, as verse 27 says, like lightning. If you look at how lightning is used as an image in the Bible, you'll see it closely linked to God's power, especially, and usually, God's power as a warrior, arriving to defeat the enemies of God and of God's people. So on the one hand, the lightning image in this passage is linked again to the destruction of Jerusalem. The leaders of Jerusalem and the temple have shown themselves to be God's enemies by, among other things, you know, killing God's son. And so they'll find God's lightning turned on them. But there's something else here. And we can only give the smallest thumbnail sketch of this right now. And hopefully we'll be able to return to this theme at another time. But N.T. Wright argues in Jesus and the Victory of God that one of the key pieces of Jesus's message was to say that the true enemies of God's people were not Rome, but rather evil, injustice, sin, and death, personified in what the Bible calls the Satan, the devil. And so here, Jesus is repurposing the image of God's power as a warrior to describe the way that Jesus is coming as king will mean the defeat of evil, sin, death, injustice. The time of the enemies of God's people, both physical and spiritual and everything in between, will be at an end when Jesus arrives and is shown to be king. That power will flash out like lightning. Jesus will conquer death. Jesus will conquer the powers that oppose God's kingdom, including the leaders of the temple, and they will fall. It will all be cataclysmic, an earth-shaking event, an apocalypse. And we're going to end there for this episode. Next time, we're going to finally get to all things afterlife because that just isn't going to fit into this already long episode. So I hope you will join me for that. And until then, I hope you have a great week. Bye. Bye.